Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see everyone on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, certainly recognize a number of faces, but a lot of new people today. So um, thank you for coming. Um, first up, I want to thank Galen Roshi, wish her a speedy recovery, but to thank her for this opportunity to present. This is my first Dharma talk, uh, and it is called A We Seeking Mind. So I'll share with you what brought me to Buddhism. Um, I served my Rakasu in 2018, 2019, um, and with the Jukai ceremony following in September of 2019. Once I went through the, uh, the, the Jukai ceremony, I realized the potential of giving a Dharma talk was out there. And I began to think, what would I talk about if I was asked to give a Dharma talk? I can say um, when Galen reached out, asked me to give this, I was both surprised that it was so soon, uh, as well as uh, honored that uh, she had the confidence in me. And I want to thank her for her guidance as I prepared for the talk this morning. Um, I've been paying particular attention to some of the folks that have given the Dharma talk here over the last few weeks. All of them have shared their personal story as far as the swell of fear, concern, worry that rises when you're asked to give a Dharma talk. And I can assure you it's real. Um, I was driving over here this morning and just a swell of, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so hopefully I can um, share with you uh, some of, of my um, journey as what brought me to Buddhism today. I also wanna thank and acknowledge my Dharma sisters here at the Zen Center. Wade, Shane, who can't be here with us today. Daniel, Mark, Michael and Kent. So thank you for your support as I've prepared for today. Today, I wanna to talk about worry. And in an indirect way, worry is what brought me to Buddhism. And so I'm gonna share with you some of my journey, what brought me here, as well as some of the Buddhist beliefs and thoughts on how we can deal with, with worry. I think all of us can attest to the fact over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of worry in the world. Uh, dealing with this pandemic, trying to, to navigate how do we survive in this environment and continue to survive, excuse me, survive. So again, worrying, a lot of fear, and what can we do to, to help accommodate that? I want to start by exploring what worry is. And the late Thich Han, and for those of you that may not know, uh, recently passed away in Vietnam at the age of 95. Um, a, a strong Buddhist practitioner, written volumes of, of information translation, so really critical to the Buddhist uh, um, uh, practice. So in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Teaching, he writes, worrying does not accomplish anything. Even if you worry 20 times more, it will not change the situation of the world. In fact, your anxiety will only make things worse. Even though things are not as we would like, we still cannot, we can still be content, knowing we are trying our best and continuing to do so. If we don't know how to breathe, smile, and live every moment of our life deeply, we will never be able to help anyone. I am happy in the present moment. I do not ask for anything else. I do not expect any additional happiness or conditions that will bring about more happiness. The most important practice is aimlessness not running after things, not grasping. And as many of us know, this idea of grasping or clinging results in suffering. And so we don't want to do that. In his book, The Noble Eightfold Path, Way to End of Suffering, Bhikkhu Bodhi introduces restlessness and worry under the path of right effort. 
He states, the first side of right effort aims at overcoming unwholesome states, states of mind tainted by defilements. Insofar as they impede concentration, the defilements are usually presented in a fivefold set called the five hindrances. They are sensual desire, ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness, worry, and doubt. They receive the name hindrances because they block the path to liberation. They grow up and over the mind, preventing calm and insight, the primary instruments for progress. So just to share a little bit more about these five hindrances. So the first one is sensual desire, which means the seeking for pleasure through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and physical feeling. Ill will is the feelings of hostility, resentment, hatred, and bitterness. Dullness and drowsiness, or also called sloth and torpor, is half-hearted actions with little or no effort or concentration. The fourth of restlessness and worry, which I'll explore more today, is the inability to calm the mind and focus one's energy. And doubt, the lack of conviction or in one's uh, uh, own abilities. So talking a little bit more about this restlessness and worry, the Sanskrit term is kaukrita, kaukritya. And this really translates into regret or worry. And in the Maha tradition, Mahayana tradition in which we practice here, uh, it really is defined as sadness because of mental displeasure with the former action. The Abhidharma Samakaya, which is a compendium of Buddhist texts, states that Kalprita is an obsession regarding the positive, negative, indifferent, timely, untimely, appropriate, and inappropriate on account of anything to be done intentionally or unintentionally and is related to bewilderment erring. Its function is to obstruct the mind from becoming settled. And again, worry, as I mentioned, causes an unsettled mind. Uh, as I mentioned, we practice the Mahayana tradition here, and Mahayana means great vehicle. Uh, it's really the path of bodhisattvas striving to be fully awakened Buddhas for the benefit of all sentient beings. And within that Mahayana tradition, the five hindrances, as I mentioned, are identified as obstacles to samatha or the tranquility of the mind. So we want to explore how do we overcome these. As for my story, I wish I could say there was a profound event that brought me to Buddhism, but I suspect as with many of you, it was a path that brought you here today. I grew up in a very white middle-class neighborhood of Detroit. Uh, I grew up during the time of the Cold War in Russia, busing in public schools was being introduced, drugs were rampant in high schools, and um, mandatory draft for men under 18 was in effect at the time. My mother was the queen of worry. And so I was exposed to fear and worry throughout my childhood. Um, unfortunately, she's no longer with me, with us, but I would love to have the opportunity to talk to her now about her, her uh, thoughts on worrying. So as I mentioned, I was constantly exposed to an environment of, of fear and worry. And as I mentioned, the draft was in place at the time. Um, I remember mom indicating we'd move to Canada if I was drafted. Um, my brother's slightly younger than me. Fortunately, the draft was repealed shortly before I became eligible to, to, uh, to be drafted. I also remember the worrying concern my mom shared when I was entering high school, given that the drugs were fairly rampant in the high schools at the time, or at least there was discussion or rumor to the effect. Of course, my parents made a much bigger deal out of it than it really was. I, 
Although I saw drugs, it was not something um, I had an issue or concern with. I attended Wayne State University in Detroit for the first two years of my, my college. And I remember the, the first day I was commuting downtown, my mom gave me a whistle to blow in case I had had any unnecessary <laughs> circumstance. Now, of course, you had it in a backpack. How are you gonna be my whistle? Uh, I, I still remember that to this day. Also being gay and in the closet at that time was, was not widely accepted. In the 60s and 70s, it was not okay to be out. I grew up during the AIDS crisis. Uh, again, a period full of, of fear and worry. I did come out post-university, but even then it was only to a select few because I was still going through that fear of worry and what, it, what repercussions I might uh, encounter as a result. I can say though, now it's a very different time and I've overcome that fear and, fear and worry in respect to being gay. Here at the Zen Center, Wade and I co-facilitate the Queer Dharma Group once a month. I'm also the vice president of Chevron's Global Pride Employee Network, where we have 14 chapters around the world looking how we can progress and advance LGBTQ-related um, uh, policies for employees. I was brought up Methodist, and although my parents weren't very strict about it, we did attend church occasionally. However, my experience with the Methodist church took a turn for the worst, if you will. I was either in elementary or early middle school, and we were attending a weekend youth retreat, uh, similar to the Zen Center where we have Auspicious Cloud West. They had a um, location outside of town uh, as a retreat center. And so I'd been several times on various weekend events, but this particular weekend um, I attended, there might've been 10 of us there. The counselor, which probably was in his mid twenties at the time, had brought, um, some marijuana laced brownies and joints to the weekend for a, for a church weekend retreat. <laughs> I can say, you know, the, the fear and worry that I've been exposed to by my parents regarding drugs, that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to, to any type of drugs. And it was just overwhelming. I can say I did not partake, um, although I did spend the weekend. But when I returned on Sunday, I remember literally breaking down into tears on the worry that I had felt from that weekend. And my mom met with the minister the next day, and I don't know the, the ultimate repercussion, but I do know that counselor was not asked to return to facilitate any youth groups. <laughs> I attended the University of Kentucky for my last two years of college. My parents were from Kentucky, although we lived in Michigan, but all my relatives, many of my relatives lived in Kentucky. Uh, there I was exposed to a, the very strict Southern Baptist, if you will. On the weekends, I would travel from Lexington, Kentucky to Louisville, Kentucky, where my, my great aunt, grandfather, cousins, etc., lived. And I would take my great aunt to church on Sunday morning. And I just found it so ironic. Um, they would attend this service on Sunday morning and then just led a very hypocritical life through the week, including my aunt. Um, it, of course, at the time, I didn't realize that. But as I look back now, I see that. But I can say the whole experience between the Methodist Church and the experience with the Southern Baptist really turned me against the idea of organized religion. While I had heard of Buddhism, it wasn't something I'd really ever been in, um, um, surrounded by or encountered, certainly not in Michigan or Kentucky. Again, if it was there, I just wasn't aware of it. Somewhere along after university, I came across this pamphlet called An Introduction to Buddhism. 
just a little tiny pamphlet uh, is written by the Dalai Lama, uh, printed in India, no copyright date, and it costs $2.50. Um, again, I have no idea exactly where or when I bought it, but I've kept it with me the entire time. I have it on or in my nightstand as a constant reminder of, of Buddhist lifestyle, um, particularly being present in the now. What attracted me most to, to Buddhism and as it presented itself in this, this pamphlet was just this idea of being present and living in the now and not worrying about the past and future. I've been exposed to a lot of worry as a kid and this idea of, of not worrying and just being present really resonated with me. Some of you may remember a book called The Power of Now, A Guide to Spiritual Enlightenment. It was written by Eckhart Tolle in, published in 2004. He was a contemporary a spiritual teacher, uh, but was not aligned with any tradition or religion. So it really wasn't written from a Buddhist standpoint, but it was just this idea of being present, living in the now, which really resonated with me. I also remember hearing about and reading uh, information from Pema Chodron, uh, particularly on her teachings regarding compassionate living. Those of you who don't know, Pema was, is an American ordained nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and has written several dozen books uh, on this idea of compassion. She actually published something called The Compassion Box. I don't know if anyone's ever familiar, remembers that at all. It was in the early 2000s. I now understand what that was to be the 59 Lojong slogans. And those of you that may not know, the Lojong slogans are a mind training practice of the Tibetan Buddhist uh, um, uh, tradition and are designed as an antidote or as antidotes, if you will, to understand this undesired mental habits that cause suffering. I still have the set. I, I meant to bring it, but, but uh, didn't. But it's, it's a good reminder of things you can do to overcome this suffering. I've worked for Chevron for 36 years. I'm currently the business planning manager for one of our larger business units. But during my career, I've been very fortunate that I spent 20 years, about 20 years uh, working overseas. Um, unfortunately, locations I was at, although some were, were great, um, I really, really wasn't exposed to, exposed to Buddhism at all. I spent six years in Kazakhstan, which was primarily a Muslim country. I spent six years in Venezuela, which is primarily a Christian uh, or Catholic uh, country. And so again, if Buddhism in some form existed as a sangha or a gathering, I was not aware of it. Fortunate for me, before being transferred here to Houston in 2016, I lived in Perth, Australia for about five years. There I found the Tibetan Buddhist Society of Perth. They'd actually built a beautiful temple. In fact, you can look it up on Facebook. A uh, beautiful temple accommodated a couple hundred people, but it was a good hour to hour and a half outside of the city. So I didn't make it out there very often, but I would attend um, classes. Uh, I took some intro to Buddhism, meditation classes, but it was there that Buddhism really took hold for me, and it was something I knew I wanted to explore, and there is where I realized the importance of practicing with the Sangha. Um, up to that point, I had read a lot about Buddhism, and I remember hosting a party at my house in uh, Venezuela, and in the bookshelf, I had a lot of Buddhist books, and someone asked, are you a Buddhist? And it really, oh, I hadn't really thought about it. But uh, I, I guess I was on that path of becoming a Buddhist. Um, let's see. 
So as I mentioned, getting transferred here in, in 2016, one of the very first things I did upon getting here is to, to try and find a Zen center. And luckily to the internet, I found the Houston Zen Center. And within a month of actually moving here, I started by an introduction to, to the Four Noble Truths, uh, a class that was offered by Tim Shorey and Glenn Duvall. I don't know if Glenn's on the, yes, he is, I see him there. <laughs> so, um, and since then, um, I've taken a number of other classes. And as you heard um, Dale mention, I've become quite involved here at the Zen Center. And I've actually taught my first class last year on the introduction to Buddhism. I know Mark attended that. I think, I don't know if anyone else is in there. At one attempt, that's right. And I'll, I'll be teaching that again this upcoming March. Um, so although I was brought up in a, uh, an environment of fear or worry, my, my practice has really allowed me to, to face it, if you will. I can't say I don't worry at all anymore. By, by far, that's not the case. But at least when this idea or concept of worry comes up, I, I can look at these Buddhist uh, ideas and philosophies on how do you cope with them? How do I deal with and how do I overcome this constant fear of worry? In Buddhism, worrying is a form of suffering. And as we know, the existence of suffering is the first of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, suffering in, in the Buddhist philosophy includes all forms of unhappiness, worry, depression, anger, regret, anything, no matter how subtle, that prevents you from living a happy and fulfilled life and prevents you from ultimately reaching a state of, of uh, enlightenment. According to Buddhists, the root of, of worrying is ignorance. Uh, since most of us see things as very solid and permanent, we tend to take life seriously and make a big deal out of all the problems and worry about them. Consequently, we're attached to these life situations and, and, and again, worry about them. And it's because of this ignorance that we do so. Worrying means to channel all of your efforts or focus on a particular object. And anything other than that object really doesn't mean anything or is not important at that time. And those objects of worry vary. If you think another way of looking at this is this idea of monkey mind, where, where it's like a monkey jumping from tree to tree. It's the same with your mind. Your thoughts are jumping from one thought to another thought and encountering and, and this idea of worry coming up. Fortunately for us as Buddhists, we understand the concept of impermanence. This thing that this idea that everything in life is an illusion. Nothing is concrete in existence. And what we see as solid and permanent today, we know will change and is not permanent. Buddhists reckon that we worry because we need a definitive answer. Human beings have an inexplicable fear of uncertainty. Uh, we need to know, we want to know the outcome. We, we want to know what's going to happen to us. And this, this fear, if you will, of uncertainty is what brings about worry. This need to change the past or the future um, promotes this, this worry and brings about anxiety. And although we might acknowledge that we know we can't really do anything about it, we still continue to worry. Um, and what you wanna do is really investigate the root of what that worrying is and what has brought that up. If, excuse me, if we realize that we don't have a hand in changing what has occurred or what might happen in the future, 
Why waste time overthinking stuff? The Buddhist rule on worrying is simple. Don't. <laughs> a quote from Shantideva, who is an 8th century Indian philosopher, Buddhist monk, poet, and scholar, reads, If you can solve the problem, then what is the need of worrying? If you cannot solve it, then what is the use of worrying? In Buddhism, this whole idea of worrying is not an intrinsic part of the mind. Although it appears quite real when it's occurring, it's not. It really kept alive in our mind because we think about it, this constant idea of worry. And it's, it's not worry from an outside factor impacting us or affecting us. It's worry from an internal perspective that we're, we're, that we're dealing with. It's found that 90% of the things you worry about, worry about are outside of your control. So it's not helpful to worry. And the other 10% you can control. So do something about it instead of worrying about it. There's a, a quote by Mark Twain that I really like. It says, I've lived some, through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. <laughs> Again, if you think about how often if you worried about something and then found out it really wasn't worth worrying about. <laughs> One of the teachings of Buddha is that the secret for, of health for both body and mind is not to mourn for the past, worry about the future, or anticipate troubles or problems, but to live in the present moment wisely and earnestly. So here are a few things from Buddhism that I would like to share with you on how do we relieve or overcome this suffering of worrying. The first one is understanding that worry won't solve a, solve a thing. Everyone worries, a conflict at work, um, this presentation you're preparing for tomorrow, delivering the Dharma talk, uh, can all be reasons to worry. But the difference between thinking and worrying is that thinking leads to a solution. Whereas worry is just an endless series of thoughts playing through your mind. What if, imagine that. As I mentioned, this monkey mind where you're jumping from thought to thought and as that mind stops and begins to worry on something, this is where you need to start acknowledging and realizing, oh, I'm worrying and look at what you can do to stop that worry. At least be aware of what you can do. The intent of most people worrying is that they're trying to put their thoughts into place, trying to rationalize what may or may not happen, playing those what-if scenarios through the mind, prepare for the situation in case it happens. But nothing really can be further from the truth. Worrying doesn't solve the problem. It just leads to more worry and leads to stress, anxiety, and gloom. And frankly, it takes a lot of time and energy. The second one is looking, taking a helicopter view and getting a pure view of your own life. Try to limit yourself on what you find important and don't worry about the small stuff. Many of you probably remember the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff or Don't Worry About the Small Stuff. Uh, it's very much about that. Don't worry about the small stuff because you really can't do much about it. I compare worrying to watering a plant. You water plant and it grows. As with worry, if you water worry, worry will continue. So you really need to look at how do you stop this constant flow of worry. A valuable situation or solution in this case is really to look at our, ourselves from an external view. As I mentioned, the helicopter view. Step out of the situation, look at it from a third party view. Talk to somebody. We have a lot of therapists here at the Zen Center, so talk to <laughs> They can help you get that, that, uh, that neutral perspective, if you will, and realize that the problem that you think is a problem really isn't. You can either do something about it or it's not worth worrying about. 
when you focus your time and energy on those few important things, then really you perform much better and get much more out of life. You get the pure view because you've given little or no energy of things that are not important. The third one is accepting that you're not in control of everything. The idea that, that we worry is because we need to feel a sense of control. We need to know what's going to happen. We want to know the outcome. There's a psychologist, Ellen Hendrickson of Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, talks about two types of control. There's the first one, which is the control freak, who wants to control everything, wants to control everything in their life. But there's another form of control, which involves accepting things cannot be controlled. So this idea of primary control, of trying to change the world around you, and secondary control is just adjusting or adapting to what's going on around you. Research has shown that people live by the secondary, allowing things to happen around you, being flexible, accommodating, will be, have a much more satisfied life than those that worry about their life. So if you want to experience control without stress, look inside. Don't look for external forces to solve, solve the issues for you. Look inside and accept that you simply cannot control everything. This will help you stay calm and go. And as things go differently than you might have planned, you can adjust or accommodate and, and deal with it. To be flexible and move with what happens um, will give you much more energy is in your life versus trying to control and change everything that goes around, occurs around you. Think about a fish swimming upstream, the amount of energy that they expand as they're swimming upstream. It's the same with you as you're trying to change the world around you or worry about the world around you. The paradox here is that you really can control things by the way you look at it and, uh, and how you deal with worry. Um, you control your thoughts and feelings. And so you decide how you're going to experience those things. And the last one is focus on the present. You hear a lot about that in the Buddhist uh, teachings, being present, living in the present, <laughs> not worrying about the past and the future. Again, what really attracted me and brought me to Buddhism. And how we determine how we live in the, in the uh, present is really... Um, determined by how we have looked at our past and, and future. So if, we, if we're not focusing on those and focusing on the, the present in the now, using our mindful, mindfulness, our meditation practice to think about what's going on and occurring now, you're gonna have a much more enriching life doing so than worrying about things. But if you're busy, if you are busy about worrying about the past and, and the future, Constantly playing these scenarios in your head, the what if, how should I change this? What can I do? You're gonna, life is gonna slip through your fingers and the future will be here before you know it. And you will not have had the opportunity to actually experience the, the present in which we are living. Worrying about the future is not necessary and give yourself uh, the opportunity to be grateful for what you have now. Everything is temporary, you know, um, we have our own life in our hands. Life is an endless amount of time presented to us in a fertile space full of possibilities and opportunities. So we need to take the opportunity to enjoy that. 
Don't let life go by while worrying about the future. Focus on and enjoy the present. Don't worry, smile, and be happy. I would like to close with the serenity prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr, who lived in 1892 from 1971. He was an, uh, an American reformed theologian, commentator on politics and public affairs, and a professor at Union Theological Seminary. It reads, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you.